Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk about WTI crude oil. Matt just called it out. We're down, you know, we hit $80 a barrel uh, yesterday on WTI crude. I, didn't, I don't know where this is coming. So let's bring in some people. And it was did, fast, right? It, it went was. from 70 to 80 very quickly. Exactly. We're below $68 uh, in late June for WTI crude. Now here we are at 80. Go figure. Mike McGlone, though, uh, he knows what's going on. So does Fernando Valle. Uh, they are both analysts covering the energy space. Uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Mike, let's start with you. You're down in balmy Miami, Florida. How is it now, tough guy? It's actually cooler here than you are there. You're high yesterday. I think it was <laughs> high 90s. Ours is in the low 80s. So you got to come south to cool off. All right, buddy. How did, how did we get here with WTI crude oil at 80 bucks a barrel? We were at 70 at the beginning of July. So right. within a month, we're up 10 bucks. So let's look at in the year. It's unchanged, basically. Still actually down in the year. So it's it's basically bouncing from getting too oversold. But look at the macro big picture. What we did last year was one of the biggest pumps on a two-year basis ever. And it's in the back end of that. And the history of these things are very bad for crude oil, particularly if you have the Federal Reserve still tightening and disappointing data out of China. Those are current trends. So I'm still very bearish crude oil. I see it at the upper end of the range. I still think it's more likely to head towards 40. And right now, one key key thing that's really mattering for everything and virtually all risk assets, most notably copper and crude oils, the U.S. stock market basically has to keep going just for these markets to stay stable. So that's the problem. If, if stock market actually drops a little bit, these assets are probably going to continue reverting last year's pumps. So that's the trader perspective, Fernando. Um, what do we know about supply and demand here? Well, on the demand side, of course, Northern Hemisphere summer, Paul is driving more to the shore. Yep. They're driving a little bit more consumption, but it's been slightly underwhelming on the last few numbers of the EIA. In July, of course, you had the start of the Saudi Arabia, the additional cuts that they promised in the last OPEC Plus meeting. So that's probably sapping a little bit of the, on the supply side. But when we look at the inventory figures, it hasn't changed drastically. It's really been this whole, all right, we're coming to a soft landing in the economy, which Mike is just showing that the, the, the current data is not really pointing towards that direction. Um, but there's an expectation that the soft landing is what will really put a, a pushes over the edge, and that's likely what's driving uh, oil prices higher. That and the OPEC plus cut, at least in the short term. Exxon kind of missed numbers today. How do you do that if you're an energy company? I could make money as an energy company. What happened to Exxon? <laughs> they made money, and to be fair, they told you they they came right on the in the range that they guided. Okay. Four weeks ago, it's just consensus a little slow to update sometimes. Okay, you know analysts are a little stubborn. You wouldn't know anything <laughs> no, about that. Of course not. Um, but they 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 still generated significant free cash flow, uh, not enough to cover their buybacks. 
um, but they generated enough free cash flow. The good thing is they came into the quarter with almost $33 billion in cash. Um, the net debt to EBITDA under 0.2 times, it stayed at that level. So they can still get to that $35 billion of buybacks by the end of 2024. Of course, that will probably mean uh, higher leverage unless Brent goes above 85. Mike, how do you uh, play earnings as a trader, or do you? Um, g- give uh, us give us some trader insight for, for those at home that want to play along. I mean, when earnings season comes around, usually analysts are lowballing, uh, right? But in this case, as Fernando points out, they haven't caught up with the um, with the forecast cut that we got out of Exxon. How do you how do you play? Is it an opportunity earnings? Well, the the key thing to remember about energy equities versus underlying energy measures as measured by the Bloomberg Energy Commodity Index is the equities typically outperform. And that was definitely the case last year. And it's still been the case this year. The key thing is if you look at the XLE, that's like the major ETF that tracks energy prices. They're up. It's almost up almost the same thing as the S&P 500. So that's the key thing to remember. The energy equities can create more with less every day. And the actual underlying commodities are succumbing to that, which is by the price of crude oil now was first traded in about 2006. But the key thing I want to point out is this recent data you mentioned supply and demand. I enjoyed putting in my energy outlook is this month, the latest estimates from the Department of Energy is this month in July that the U.S. is consuming about 9 million barrels a day of motor fuel, um, gasoline, which includes ethanol. I, lo- I know Matt loves that. Compared to 2019 in July, that's 5% below. And here's another statistic I really like pointing out that really accelerated is Bloomberg New Energy Finance pointed out that global EV sales are now about 15% of new auto sales compared to the same period in 2019. It was 3%. Wow. Where's that going? Yeah, that's crazy. And by the way, that's only going up, right? I mean, um, who was it? I think it was talking to Fatty B-Roll of the IEA, and he said he expects it to go over 20% this year. So, But those of us own own EVs, I said, there's no way I'm going back. It's just a better way to get around. All right. Fernando, Um, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you there. There's no replacement for displacement there, Mike. Um, So, all right, Fernando, our good friends down in the Permian, I mean, in other shale areas in the U.S., they're pumping, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, Chevron just broke their record 772,000 barrels a day in the second quarter. So they're trending towards that 1 million barrel a day by 2026 that they, they aimed. And uh, Exxon as well, uh, producing significant barrels there. And I think we mentioned last time, but we think the, the five largest uh, producers in the Permian are going to account for nearly 50% of production by the end of the decade. That's Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, Pioneer, and Occidental. Um, so they are growing. It's just... Um, not as fast as that was once hoped. You know, the, the, the dreams of us getting to 16, 18 million barrels a day uh, are probably in the rearview mirror. So what do we do now? Uh, we do about 12 and a half, just under 12 and a half. Okay. And how much do we, we're net exporter, right? Uh, yes and no. It depends because we don't have all the crudes that we need. So we import some, and, but yes, on a net See, basis. I, I think I can go down to Texas, Houston. You know, raise some money from some good old boys and start putting some holes in the ground. And eighty dollars a barrel, I can make a lot of money. You would. My think, cost is it, like forty, right? It's it, it's it's a forty just on the drilling side, but then you have all the. I mean, you're not cheap. Okay. And uh, you have to pay for you. You yep. have to pay for your CFO. You have to pay taxes. Uh, so your overall 
fully loaded costs are higher. Yeah, only a wildcat. And then wildcat. you don't get eighty dollars; you get a discount on that. And hey, you don't only produce oil; you produce other things. Hey, okay. Mike, does uh, does the SPR play any um, play at all into the equation here? I mean, I know that we we drained it, um, you know, to buy votes for the Democratic Party before the midterms, <laughs> which is, you know, that's what the SPR was for. Nice trade. Uh, are we going to fill it back up? I thought the idea was we we're going to do that when it was low, and it was low, and we didn't. There was no hurry to do that if you really compare it to when I was pumping gas at a gas station in 1979 as a gas jockey. And gas price went over a dollar. We had to price it in half gallons because the analog um, tanks couldn't do that. There is a massive excess of supply. If you look at liquid fuels of U.S. and Canada, um, around 4 million barrels a day. For those old days when U.S. was a net importer are over. So the only really reason you need the SPR now is for offsetting things like hurricanes and stuff because we could ramp up that, that supply even more so if we want. I'm looking at liquid fuel production in this country. It's basically an all-new high. Include liquid fuels because they have to include ethanol I'm from the farm. That's almost 20 million barrels a day. Our consumption peaked about 15 years ago. So there's a very bad trend for prices, and that's the key thing about SPR. President Biden might go down as one of the best oil traders in history. <laughs> All right. All right. You heard it here. I'm, that's fascinating Petro stuff. Petroleum distribution engineer. That is the term. That that's that's what the yeah. gas jockey is? <laughs> that's right. Were Petroleum? you pumping leaded gas? Yes. Was that leaded, Mike? I guess he's yes. stopped listening. Yeah, all, right. all right, Mike McGlone, he's back out on the pump. Mike McGlone, Fernando Valley, they cover all the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. They put it in perspective for us. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Some of these central banks here, we've had a lot of activity, yeah. including the Bank of Japan today. It, it, I mean, when I look at the ECB, when I look at the Fed, it seems like they're saying we're pretty much done. Is that kind yeah. of your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, we knew that we were close to the end of the cycle. So the question was always, would it take another turn of the screw, basically, to get us into the landing zone for both the Fed and the ECB? Um, and, you know, the, the central banks are signaling, are, are, are reinforcing that they essentially agree with the markets that that we're we're near the end um, I, um, I I still feel um, that you know we, we are currently in the state of I was thinking of using the term disinflation euphoria but I think that kind of is a little too pejorative but more disinflation optimism because okay. there is you know there's there's reason there's reason for it um, but broadly speaking um, I, I, I I think that through the course of this whole inflation cycle, um, the markets and policymakers have underestimated the resilience of the economy. They sort of look through a lot of the, you know, the demand-driven components right. of inflation, and people look very much at sort of, you know, the 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 in the subcomponents of you know in, of, of inflation, used cars. I have no idea know, why OER economists and, ignore. And it seems that. like yeah. uh, ignore the demand-driven side of it. Yeah, I don't get why. Why is that? Yeah, uh, I I think people want to declare victory, you know, and I think right. the policymakers, everybody wants this to be over. Well, yesterday and, we talked yeah. with Cam Harvey at yeah. Duke, um, and he said, you know, that the the Fed's got it all wrong. It's not three percent inflation; it's like zero point one percent inflation. Like 
he said that the picture is completely skewed by the housing, uh, the way they calculate housing in there. And I think a lot of people agree with him that it's much lower um, than than the Fed expects. Are you worried that the Fed pushes us into a recession by hiking too much? Um, I, I'm not worried that the Fed pushes us into recession. I think that um, it will take a recession, and I don't think the Fed, the, the Fed, the ECB, everybody is now managing towards growth. So this is what's new here with this inflationary cycle. As we get closer to the to the top, they're more, you know, looking at a two-sided view, trying to balance the soft landing that everybody's talking about. And you know, I, I don't want to. Policy error is, is, you know, maybe a too easy of glib of a word to say because I understand what they're trying to achieve here. Um, but, you know, to the extent that spot inflationary numbers are showing a, tre a disinflationary trend, I think people really underestimate the self-reinforcing elements right. of, of inflation. I, don't, I think we have... You know, I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, oh, back in my day. But I think that, that, that you know, the, the, that the global central bank community, you know, back when they did the new framework and all that, they said inflation, we'll, we know how to deal with it when we see it. And, you know, they were kind of caught deer in the headlights. They scrambled to catch up. But I think there's still this, um, this, this tendency to think that, that to, to underestimate the forces of inflationary pressures once you unleash them. For example, you know the, the the nominal spending. I mean, we we look at in you know corporate profits. You you look at you you have to think in nominal terms a lot here, and and you see you know the the corporate America is doing well. Mm -hmm. They're still able to pass the price pricing. You know is is is, is being passed yeah. through um, to the consumers. Europe is a little bit different story. We're seeing obviously more slowdown in Germany in particular. Recession, yeah. Um, but uh, there there I think there are two things that. Um, really uh, stand out to me. One is that the, the underestimating the self-reinforcing elements of inflationary dynamics once it sets in. And the other is that I think people st still, even today, underestimate the power of the fiscal impulse that was put into the system. And economists and you know the, the central bankers, they don't like to, especially the Fed, they don't like to talk about fiscal policy. Yeah. But you know, we still have you know, there's these it's things. It's too big it, to be left out of the feeding, conversation. It's still feeding through. It's still feeding you through know, into the system. Uh, Paul, this morning, as I was driving to work, I was on a call what with. Are you, a, what are you driving? Uh, I'm driving right now, I'm driving an Alfa Romeo sure. Tonali. Yeah, We're going to talk not? about that. Okay. But I was on the phone <laughs> with the CEO of Maserati. And apparently not paying tolls either. No. <laughs> uh, um, Should we ask John? No, just, John, what do you drive? Uh, well, a, a Subaru. A, Matt wants oh. to jump in. A Subaru. <laughs> right, I'm sorry, track. I got everybody off off track. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I was just no, no. Uh, Subaru is a great car. I was talking to the CEO of Maserati, Davide Grasso, sure. and he said they still have inflation. They still feel okay. it pretty uh, strongly in their yeah. input costs, yeah. right? Yeah. And so they're passing that along. To yeah. uh, prove your point, the Maserati Gricale Trofeo, which is a small SUV, is going for over a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Which no problem for Matt Miller. Yeah. All right, Sasan, before you were uh, founded SGH Macro Advisors in 2009, you made your living trading currencies here. So I got to ask you, I got the dollar down, I don't know, 10% from its uh, high back in the fall here. What's your call on, on the dollar here? Is there a bearish call on the dollar? Or is this just a little trade down? No, I, I think there's a bearish call on the dollar. I think, as you know, I mean, it, it might seem at odds with the notion that we still have inflation, we have more room to hike rates. Um, but, you know, we have to look at it, 
you know, and this is always a tricky part of, with currencies, you know, to have a dollar call. It's yep. really, you got to look at what dollar yen is kind of a different animal than the Oh my goodness, what happened yesterday? That. But yeah, you know, I they pulled it off very nicely, I think, yeah. the Bank of Japan, you know, they and, you know, it's it's people were expecting this to be sort of a huge, you know, explosive event for markets. We had dollar a, yen a still in the same range that it was it's, 140, right? Uh, U.S. Treasury are still under four. Yeah. And, and importantly, the JGB yields, um, you know, they, they went up to like 56 basis points and settled in like the mid 50s. So it's not like oh, they lifted a fifth, you know, 50 basis point ceiling and, and it went to 100 and, it went to 100. And, yeah. and, you know, the reason is and this is why I think UADA did a, a, a nice job on this is that and we've kind of been flagging this that the the tactical window for them to do this would was going to be at a time when there wasn't a lot of bearish pressure on global bond markets which you know when you look at what's happening in the u.s and what's happening in the ECB, it was a really nice window for them to sort of uh to to walk in and you know and manage it so dollar call you know i i i think you know we're close to the end of the cycle um i don't think we're at the end of the cycle i think we we still have a couple more hikes you know i, I think it, we have at least one more hike left you know for uh for the fed um and i sort of think that you know looking ahead the, the central banks might need to um you know to put another turn on the screw uh on tightening because well pal said that he said september's he kind of warned us about september right yeah, yeah. I mean, September. The markets have priced everything out, you know, for the U.S. right now. And I think that the issue with September is just that it's going to be hard for them to to explain or to even want to, you know, um, press for a hike when, you know, when when the when the inflation numbers are going to are are most likely going to come in benign, you know. And I, markets have been expecting that, and I, I think there's no reason. But they to, can prove their to, point. He can say, "Listen, I was telling you all year, I want to get to two percent. Three percent is not good enough." Yeah. You know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that's the, the the broader point is that the the both the ECB and the Fed, I think their current stance, I think the the you know putting aside the 2023 numbers if you look at kind of the 2024 forecast i think it's a little aspirational the, the pace <laughs> at which that they expect that you know that inflation the disinflationary trend is going to continue when that manifests itself you know i i i still think the ecb is going to hike in september oh, you know? so wow. bummer yeah no, Why? A, you're no fun i'm done i'm done i've taken a recession off the table i'm done with rate uh hikes i've got earnings troughing here i'm set up for a ripping market that's my call i'm sticking yeah, with it I, I i one of the problems for traders has been that um i i think they haven't been able to right. square the circle with interest rate hikes versus stock market going up it yep, can exactly. still happen yeah. yep all right sasan thank you so much sasan garamani president ceo and founder of sgh macro advisors we appreciate you coming in here you're listening to the tape trading at schwab is now powered by ameritrade unlocking the power of thinkorswim the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market visualize your trades in a new light on thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Bloomberg Intelligence, B.I. Go on your terminal. Bloomberg Intelligence is the biggest research department on Wall Street, and more importantly, I believe, the best research department on Wall Street. So we have access to all their analysts, including Matt Henriksen. He's a senior equity analyst covering medical technology. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And one of the things we like about our BI analysts is they often bring us companies that we never would have thought about, never would have really, you know, think of as, as an investment. But here's Dexcom. DXCM is a, is a symbol. This is a $50 billion market cap stock. Hit a 52-week high today. It's up 21%. Uh, Matt, what is Dexcom and what's going on with this stock today? Yeah, so Dexcom uh, makes uh, what they're called CGMs. It's That's short for Continuous Glucose Monitors. And basically, this technology is replacing what is antiquated, which is finger sticks, which is you ah. have to prick your finger um, three or four times a day to get your glucose reading. Wasn't there a company that kind of did that a little bit, Theranos or something? Do I remember well, that? Yeah, oh, that, 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 <laughs> that's, a, that's a different all right, story. All right, but, good. All right, but, we'll stick but with Dexcom. Same thing, though. Prick your finger, get four readings a day. That's yep. antiquated. It hurts. It's a pain in the butt. Right. It's a um, pain in the finger. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. So CGMs come in. It's on your arm or on your abdomen. It does a reading every five minutes. So that's 288 readings a day without pricking your finger. Okay. And you get the trends, you get the ups, the downs. It's predictive. So it says you're going to be up, you're going to be down. That's what type 1 diabetes patients need to be able to treat you know, the highs and the lows. Um, so it's amazing that it's a, I mean, it's amazing that a $54 billion company um, just has one kind of <coughs> trick. Yeah. But I mean, it, that's all they focus on? That's all they focus on, but that's all the trick they need right now because you have 35 million diabetic patients in the U.S. alone. And climbing, I'm assuming. Climbing, yes. And we'll get into those type 2 patients a little bit more. But right now, they're only focusing on the type 1s and those patients that really What's the need... difference, by the way, type 1, type 2? Oh, so type 1 is more genetic, um, and you your pancreas cannot create insulin. So you need to inject yourself with insulin to lower your blood sugar, but... You know, the problem with taking too much insulin is that you're low blood sugar and then you could pass out or even worse. Um, that's why you need the CGM or that's why you need but to pick your finger. But that's something that you uh, inherit. That's not yeah, something that's you all, get from that's, drinking way too much soda. No, no, no. That's, uh, that's, well, that's when you get the type 2. And by drinking so much soda or eating so many candy bars, your pancreas just cannot produce enough insulin anymore. And it kind of just shuts down because it's overloaded. And that's the, I guess, the big problem that we're looking at uh, in terms of 
the climbing numbers, right? Yes. And so yeah. when you see like the climbing numbers, it's mostly type two and it's mostly due to these lifestyle decisions. Of Just eating nerds eating, all day long. Yep. And yeah. you know, sitting at your desk all day long. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so Dexcom, um, this is a way to play that market. And did they have some earnings recently or something? Yeah, so they reported last night. Um, and their recent product, their, it's the seventh generation, so obviously called G7. Um, yep. That launched earlier this year, and that's helped boost um, revenue. So they beat in the quarter, and then they raised their guidance. So now they're up to $3.5 billion to $3.55 billion. Um, so that's 20 to 22% growth nice. on a $3 billion revenue run rate. So um, the market liked that. Uh, and so we've seen the kind of the, the rally today. All right. So in the world of kind of medical equipment, what are some of the hot areas? What are the areas that, that kind of get your attention? Yeah. I mean, so the big themes in med tech right now is, um, is diabetes is one and robotics is another one. Um, the main um, company participating in robotics is uh, Intuitive Surgical, ISRG. Intuitive Surgical. I, what's the symbol? ISRG. Okay. And so you're talking about a $50 billion company. This is a $100 billion market cap. God, you just don't know these companies. Where have I been? All right, what do they do? So they are creating robotic systems that help with um, various surgeries. Uh, it can be anything from general surgery, so hernia repair, bariatric surgery. A ro robot is doing this? Yeah, well, I mean, it's... Um, so this is where you get your kids to start playing video games. Oh, I see. Okay. It's controlled by a video game or what looks like a video game controller. Okay. So, so the surgeon uses a joystick essentially to do things in extremely precise ways. Exactly. And what basically, you know, even, you know, when you talk, think about a surgeon, what do they have? They have a very steady hand. But even the steadiest hand by the steady, yep. Yeah, oh, God, I would not want to. It's a John Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> Paul's hands are too shaky. I knew a surgeon in London. He had to knock back basically a bottle of scotch before he could do any kind of operation. That's not good. Yeah. Uh, and this yeah. is the guy you went to. Yes. <laughs> He's a friend of mine. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's why you should never uh, mix friends in work, right? So, so, so intuitive surgical. Um, I wonder if there's any AI involved. I've noticed... Uh, we've all noticed, I think, lately that every company seems to be using artificial intelligence. Are you seeing that in any of the companies that you cover? Yeah, there's um, it's it's AI and it's uh, the, for med tech. It's specifically machine learning. So you're learning from the past procedures, whether it's um, surgery, whether it's uh, knee replacements, um, and you're learning to see what went right, what went wrong. You're learning with these patients how the recovery is. And then you're trying to use those and you're trying to show the doctor, hey, why don't we try this method next time? And so it's kind of you're building this big data machine learning aspect to try to really streamline and kind of make the surgery just more um, efficient. All right. The two companies or three companies you've given us so far, they're all up 20, 30 percent this year. So in the medical technology, medical equipment business, is this just a play that post pandemic, we're now going back and getting procedures done. So your companies are doing well. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much, yeah, you just, that's your you just job. answered see, it for me, see, yeah. I, just, I can do his job. I can walk yeah. into Fidelity tomorrow and say, buy these stocks yeah. because people yeah. go. Uh, but you know what, the thing, though, is that because of the rally this year so far, this earnings, you've had to be, have had a perfect report or else the market's going to uh, kick back. And, you know, intuitive surgical, for example, um, they beat estimates, they raised guidance, but in their call, they made one comment that, there is slower growth in bariatric surgery, which is just a small portion of mm -hmm. their total surgeries. And the reason was that patients are trying Ozempic and other weight loss drugs before going uh, to weight loss surgery. 
Uh, and so that big competition, it, big, big competition there. Zemtik? Yeah. Why go under the knife if you can just give yourself a shot in the arm or wherever they get it and um, and lose weight that way? All right. Are we gonna, you're going to come back and talk to us about Ozempic, Ozempic or whatever it is. I don't. I can't imagine. You got to get me a prescription, man. <laughs> you got to hook me up. <laughs> All right, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt Hendrickson. He's a senior equity analyst covering the med tech space uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. And again, terminal users can find all the research at BIGO. You're listening to the Team Cancer Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk space. Let's talk investing in space. Justice Parmar joins us here. He's the CEO and founder of Fortuna Investments. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He is streaming on YouTube. Uh, Justice, talk to us about Fortuna. What do you guys do? And talk to us about kind of in your investments in space. Absolutely. So we're a, an award-winning venture capital firm. We've had a tremendous track record in other industries. We famously made a name for ourselves back in 2016, 2017. That was back when Elon and Tesla were just beginning to take off. Um, it wasn't the, the star, Tesla was not the star then that it is now. Just to give you context, Elon was selling like 60,000 cars a year. He's selling 2 million cars a year now. And you guys invested in? We, so we didn't, we, we stayed away from Tesla, okay. but what we did was we realized it was the, the lithium ion batteries that were fueling this electrification. Gotcha. And so what we did is we founded and we co-founded a, a couple companies in that industry. One went to a billion dollars on NASDAQ and the other one was sold last year for $460 million. So we've had a tremendous track record in other industries. Now we've turned our attention to this new space economy. We believe this to be a once in a lifetime opportunity and we're so happy to be on the front line. And so uh, Starfighter Space is the first investment that you're making. Tell us about this company, because not everyone's heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's a private company. They're, they're located at the John F. Kennedy Space Center at NASA, right beside Jeff and Elon. And so what Elon and, and, and obviously SpaceX gets a lot of headlines. And so the secret sauce, what Elon's doing is he's got this Falcon 9 rocket cranking. He's, he's taking it up every single week and he's focusing on the heavy payload, big satellites, heavy payload. That's what he's got going on. And so for us at Fortuna, we realize there's a void in the market because the small satellites are actually being neglected in a certain way. And technology is actually getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So we've made a $50 million commitment to Starfighters to help grow out this beautiful space ecosystem that's, that's starting to emerge. So the small satellites, they're like shoebox size satellites, right? That are um, getting launched in the dozens uh, with these kind of, you have a F-104 supersonic aircraft. How do awesome. they how do they launch those? They just fly up to the top and kick them out? Or uh, what does their payload delivery system look like? You know your stuff. It's yeah. amazing. So yeah, so the short answer is yes. Technology is getting smaller and smaller. And so they could be anywhere from like a pizza box all the way to even the size of your iPhone. And they're called small sats, nanosats. And so Starfighters, with our funding, is actually going to get their launch license. So they expect to have their launch license in the next 8 to 12 months. And as soon as we get that launch license, as Paul said, we already have the nine F-104 fighter jets that fly Mach 2 speeds tremendously fast, obviously. And if you think about the nine fighter jets that we have, that's bigger than, I don't know, Switzerland's you know Air Force or <laughs> certain <laughs> countries' Air Force, right? So we've got this as a private company, 100% owned, no debt, and we look really forward to, to taking this next step in terms of the launch game. How do retail investors play you know, investing in space? Sure. And so that's, it's a bit of a loaded question, but here's what I'll say. I... I believe that the market, so we've come off the worst market crash in the last 20 years, since 2008. 
almost 20 years. And so a lot of the stocks have been extremely depressed in that industry, in, in all industries, albeit obviously there's been an uptick in the last you know, couple of months or so, but we at Fortuna believe that the market's to perform extremely well over the next couple of years. Reason being is there's trillions of dollars of cash on the sidelines. We've, we've seen peak interest rates. Um, we, we also realize that um, there's gonna be M&A activity galore and there's a lot, and it's a US presidential year coming up. So there's a lot of really interesting catalysts coming up for the equity markets. We think the market's gonna perform well and within their space has been a depressed category that we think is gonna perform very well over the next couple of years. So oh, oh, sorry. What, I, I was gonna ask, uh, what else is there besides launching satellites? Um, uh, we hear so much about space mining, but I don't think anyone's ever really achieved that. And it seems like uh, it must be a decade away. So what else? I mean, I know Elon Musk wants to go to Mars and put a colony there. What are we talking about? Yeah, so we at Fortuna, so we're blessed. We've got you know almost 30 individuals, 30 folks on our team. You know, these are research analysts, these are investment bankers, CAs, CFAs, all sorts of brilliant people. So we actually get pitched three, four, up to five times a day from various space companies looking for investment. So to answer your question, Matt, we see it all, or, or not all, but we see a lot of really, really interesting things coming through our, our desks. And so I agree with you. I think that the 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 space mining is still maybe eight to 12 years out potentially. But there are interesting applications such as, for example, solar, solar energy. We at Fortuna are big in solar energy. We've got solar energy investments here in the US. But just conceivably, if you think about it, the, the, the sun that we get on planet Earth here, it's actually diluted. It's, it's diluted by the Earth's atmosphere and we get a very diluted version of the sun. And so if, if and when we're able to have satellites with solar in outer space, you think about that, it's gonna be 10,000 ti 10, times more powerful, clean sun. And things like this are, are gonna be the future of this beautiful industry that's just starting to come together. The so, cord would be so long, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, kind of, what's the VC world like today in terms of raising capital, deploying capital? We've got higher interest rates. Uh, the world's really changed from that free money of just a, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, how has it kind of impacted your business? Yeah, so that, that that's just it. The growth stuff has been really, really hurt. VCs are very shy to put money out, although that might have changed in the last 30 days with this AI push. Aside from the AI, it's been a really, really tight industry. A lot of guys are licking their chops because they've financed companies at extremely high valuations, many of which will probably never be seen before. So it's really tricky. But for us at Fortuna, we monitored the space industry. We actually thought it was a little bit too buoyant over the last couple of years with the SPAC craze and some of these things that were going on. We did our homework and we're actually using this as a perfect entry point in our opinion where technology has been the furthest it's ever been and valuations have actually been the cheapest. We play the long game, we play five year, 10 year cycles. And so for that reason alone, it's a tremendously exciting opportunity. Did you see the uh, congressional hearing the other day? Oh, yeah. On UFOs. UFOs. Sure, I'm yeah. glad they're working on that. <laughs> so apparently we have some alien wreckage. It's top secret, really? totally classified. Okay. So why are you saying it? You're just, We're just outing it the whole time. I mean, that was, that was the big thing about this, uh, this congressional panel. Um, if we could just... If we could just get some of that technology, imagine how much you could, you know, supersize the space investment. Yeah, 
So I mean, all right. So <laughs> just moving along. <laughs> I mean, I you know what I was thought I thought of it because you asked how does a retail investor get in on the space, and my immediate uh, reaction is to type in ETF go on the Bloomberg terminal. Right. So I do that, and I put space in the uh, description, and then I get Arc X is an ETF yeah, you could Woods. use, and, and so Kathy Wood yeah. UFO if is think, another one. And, and Rocket ROKT yeah. that, it's yeah. hitting fifty two week highs. Take a look at Rocket; it, it's a really nice basket. The, the stock looks from the bottom left to the top right. Um, General Electric, for example, that's a great way, in my humble opinion, to play it. Um, obviously, talk to your own financial advisor; it's not financial advice, but you know, GE was was a global conglomerate. They're yep. getting rid of everything, including so, healthcare, right. and they're only focusing on aerospace and avionics and if you take a look at that chart it's been one of the best performing stocks Finally, out there yeah. Yeah. and so that's another you know low access easy way to start to you know look at these things because the reality is all the listeners at home and, and some of the folks they don't have the chance to necessarily buy the SpaceX's or the Relativities or the Fireflies or some of these private companies that the VC world are, are currently Can backing. you buy SpaceX on the secondary market? Yeah, we, we ironically, we had an opportunity to buy it back in 2015 at, at a $15 billion valuation. <laughs> Obviously, we did not do that. Why would we? Uh, still kind of kicking ourselves. But uh, but yeah, we, we do get offered the, the, the SpaceX rounds of financing, absolutely. But what we try and look for, we try and find the SpaceX's before they turn into the SpaceX. So we're not necessarily looking for a $150 billion company. We're looking for a, a, an earlier stage is, company. Is private space industry is it primarily a u.s industry or are there other countries doing it as well though it is a global industry it's okay. a it's a 540 billion dollar global industry of that the u.s base the u.s is over 200 billion so it's almost half of the global output we at fortuna believe it's going to a trillion dollar industry this decade it's going to be the fastest growing industry next to potentially ai coming up here which is one of the reasons we're so excited about this industry a lot of those launches go out of french guyana yep right yep Yep, went down there once back in the day for um, uh, one of the uh, when the satellite industry was just kind of kicking off. Uh, it was a good trip, actually. Justice Parmar, CEO and founder of Fortuna Investments, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking about space, investing in space uh, as a venture capitalist. Uh, lots of opportunities there. S and P five hundred. There's opportunities right there. It's up over one percent today. The uh, Nasdaq uh, is up one point nine percent. So there you go. The market's definitely. Wow liking what they heard from the earnings side and liking what they heard from uh, some of these central bankers, uh, reflecting that in the marketplace. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's bring that conversation. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. He joins Ed Lello and Caroline Hyde on Bloomberg Technology today after reporting earnings Let's go to that conversation right now. I want to welcome our global Bloomberg TV and radio audiences. Intel shares are jumping with investors buying into signs that the chipmaker's long-awaited comeback is underway. Intel is forecasting sales in the current quarter of $13.9 billion ahead of expectations. The company also notched a surprise profit of $0.13 a share in the quarter just gone as a slump in demand for personal computers appears to be coming to an end. It's not all good news. Server demand isn't recovering as quickly. The company's still a little bit far from its heyday, where margins were at 60%, sales were nearer to $20 billion, even so. Joining us now, Intel's CEO, Pat Gelsinger. You know, Pat, this is the second consecutive quarter where investors have cheered the earnings results. Shares are up. And I think before 2023, 10 out of the 11 earnings prints that you had, shares fell. Is this job done for you in the turnaround at Intel? <laughs> well, Ed, we have a long way to go yet. Uh, but, uh, boy, having two good beat and ray quarters in a row, you know, is uh, super positive and really, you know, I think, indicative of that turning point uh, for the uh, company. But we still have a lot of work to do yet. You know, as we said, our client business is now, you know, healthy footing. You know, we've returned market share to where it traditionally was, a strong roadmap. You know, the market's recovering. Inventory levels are good. You know, data center, we still have work to do. But boy, you know, two quarters in a row where we did a bit better than we expected. You know, but we still have challenges in AI. You know, and many of our really good products are only coming to market over the next uh, year. You know, networking, still a lot of inventory to work through. And our foundry business is still just a seedling, just starting to show some green shoots. So I'll say, boy, far from finished, but it is nice bouncing off the bottom a bit and feeling that momentum in the market response. Pat, why do you have the confidence to kind of call the end of the, the PC slump? And, and also at the same time state that the server recovery is delayed to the end of the year. Yeah, and the PC side, you know, inventory levels are now healthy, right? You know, everything that we've seen and a lot of the, you know, issues that we worked through Q4, Q1, and Q2 were over inventory levels by the OEMs and the channel. And now everything is healthy. Our roadmap is very good. We've gained share multiple times uh, in a row. I think we're now at five out of six quarters where we've uh, gained market share. So I just say in the PC business, healthy. Our position is good. And we're looking forward to the AI PC. And with our launch of our next generation product, Meteor Lake, uh, later this year, you know, we believe that it ushers in the AI PC generation. And I've compared that to like Centrino and Wi-Fi you know, two decades ago, a major new use case for why the PC is the best platform. So we're quite excited about that. On the data center side, you know, we still saw that you know, the inventory levels still persist. You know, China was weaker than expected. Their recovery is going slower. And, you know, cyclically, we see the shift toward AI, 
you know, these big training machines, every cloud vendor is shifting their dollars to more focus on that. So those three things are leading to a bit longer recovery cycle on the data center. But like I said, we performed a bit better than we thought on the data center in Q1 and Q2. So we're feeling like our momentum and execution is rebuilding despite some of those headwinds that still persist in that area. For our global TV and radio audience here at Bloomberg, we're speaking to Pat Gelsinger, the Intel CEO. Pat, you're forecasting gross margin of 43% in the current period, but, it, but it's a long way from that 60% gross margin level. You know, Wall Street used to look at Intel and say 60%. You know, they would cheer you as a leader in that space. Can you just explain to our global audience the timeline and path to getting back to profit at that level? Yeah, and we're working our way back in margins and obviously a nice beat in Q2 on margins and we forecast Q3 a bit better and Q4 a bit better. You know, and part of it is the cyclicality of the semiconductor industry is brutal on margins. And when we, you know, had an oversupply situation, inventory, you know, that just depresses margins because, you know, the factories cost the same whether they're full or whether they're empty. So you end up with these uh, charges that you know, burden the price points and uh, depress margins. We also realize that our own product execution has weakened our product position, you know, which doesn't have ASPs as strong as well. So that's another factor. And the last factor here is you know, the plan that uh, my CFO, Dave, and I have laid out is an expensive plan. We are making aggressive investments to build the capacity to get back to leadership. And thus, we're moving through nodes very rapidly. We said five nodes in four years. So that causes us to have a lot of undepreciated you know, capacity that we're working through quite aggressively. Also, building up a bit more capacity for our foundry initiatives. So all of those factors depressed margins you know, to historically low levels in the first part of the year. And we're just seeing ourselves now working to build back to margin levels. But we're still very confident that as we uh, build our foundry business, get back to leadership and process and products, you know, that those kind of margins, that's exactly what uh, Dave and I aspire to, to the future. And we feel like Q2 was a good marker, you know, that yes, we're building momentum to get back there. Thank you for joining us here on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. We're joined by Pat Gelsinger, Intel CEO. You described the foundry business as a seedling, but every time you and I have spoken, you've hinted that there is a big customer waiting in the wings to give life to that business. What, you can, what can you tell us about that, Pat? Yeah, and we're, we're having good momentum. And as I said on the uh, earnings call uh, yesterday, we have two big customers in particular that we made very good progress over the last uh, uh, quarter for our foundry uh, business. We did have one, I'll say confirmatory, not as big a, a customer, but the Ericsson announcement, their commitment to 18A and our next generation work you know, with them that we announced this quarter. So I'll say overall, we're seeing good momentum and a really strong pipeline of customers. And we hope to make, you know, meaningful announcements uh, later this year on that. 
We also pointed out on our earnings call that now we're seeing a lot of interest in our packaging technology. So it isn't just wafer manufacturing, it's also package assembly and test. And Intel has long-term been a leader in packaging technologies. And because of key areas like high-performance computing and AI, there's tremendous interest in these advanced packaging technologies. And we're finding a lot of customer interest in that incremental area of the foundry business as well. So overall, you know, and the numbers were good for us in Q2 for Foundry, great pipeline of activities, great progress on a couple of these most major opportunities. So I'm feeling good like we're starting to really see that momentum build in this new business area for Intel, our Intel Foundry services. If we think about what a, a potential customer might be, you know, at the scale of Apple or Google or NVIDIA, what is it that they want from you? What is it do you think that you can provide them? Yeah, you know, when I I view it, you know, we have to go through four stages. You know, one is, are my transistors good? You know, can they build good products using Intel? Second is, do I have the design tools, you know, the cadence and synopsis EDAs and the IP libraries? Have we gotten all of those basics done so that they can design on us? You know, then third, you know, do we have good terms and conditions? Are they better off coming to me versus, you know, TSMC or Samsung as an alternative? And then finally, are we customer oriented? Can they really have the support? Because my factory becomes their factory. You know, so we have to work through all four of those stages before they're ready to commit major businesses to us. And that's why it takes a while. You know, they got to do designs and tests and pilots and, you know, work through the financials. And, you know, this isn't a mature business area for us. But I'll just say we're making great progress. And in particular, you know, the two most significant opportunities, it was a really good quarter. And I'm feeling very optimistic that, yes, we'll bring them across the line and start to really accomplish what we've laid out, you know, with our you know, reshoring and building the Western uh, foundry. We also had yes. great success with both the EU and the U.S. Chips Act this last quarter, which are affirming the strong support, you know, of the Western governments on this uh, strategy. It's the right strategy at the right time. We're making good progress. A big part of your smart capital approach. We have to talk about AI. You see a world in which the PC plays a role for localized running of LLMs. But what are the use cases that you see, Pat, the applications where a PC with AI-specific chips is relevant? Yeah, you know, to some degree, they're numerous, Ed. You know, let's just give one example. You know, in the future, my word processor, you know, I'm going to hit a button and say, give me a legal brief that describes this, and it's going to get locally generated. You know, my video conferencing, my Zoom, my Teams or Zooms, I'm going to say, you know, give me, you know, real-time translation across multiple languages, you know, for this uh, yes. meeting. And I'm going to have that in real time on my PC. You know, my games, you know, for my, you know, all of that is going to become synthetically generated worlds locally on my PC in real time. You know, so we see it across creator or across productivity. You know, and as I've said, this is sort of like a Wi-Fi moment, you know, for the uh, PC of the future. And that begins with our Meteor Lake launch in uh, the second half of this year. Pat, quickly, a $1 billion pipeline for AI products through 2024. Just give me a sense of the pace at which that pipeline is growing now. 
Yeah, we saw we had a super uh, exciting quarter. As I said, we six x that pipeline in Q2, so we saw a huge uptick on that. You know, and I've deployed a lot more sales resources, software resources. You know, to jump on those opportunities uh, worldwide. You know, when we have our Gaudi two chip that is you know now in volume. You know, we've just seen the first wafers on the next generation Gaudi three, which will be our 2024 you know product, and then we have our 25 and 26 products underway. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of momentum there. And the world is looking for a great alternative, an open alternative, a more cost-effective alternative. And Intel is a trusted supplier. We think this is a great, you know, area for us to put a lot of energy into. And we're seeing the response from the marketplace now. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger, we appreciate your time here on Bloomberg TV and radio. Thank you. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to get to cars right now. Oh, there we go. I'm so happy to... Uh, be back on this program and talk about <laughs> the car industry. I've been covering it for you know 20 years now, and as a result, as you know, manufacturers often give me vehicles to test out. It's the best part of the job. This week, I am driving the Alfa Romeo Tonali, which is a subcompact SUV. It's a very crowded segment, but this one is electrified. It's got a hybrid nice. drivetrain. It has a very tiny gas motor, 1.3 uh, liter, four-cylinder motor driving the front wheels, electric motor driving the back, and it can do more than 30 miles of range on the battery by itself. So it's a very interesting vehicle. Also joining us to talk about Alfa Romeo, uh, Stellantis, as, which is the owner, as well as the broader car industry, is one of the few people who has driven more cars than me. Bloomberg Pursuits, Hannah Elliott, joins us from Los Angeles, and I'm really uh, glad. Hannah, I've been chasing after you for weeks uh, to get you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. What do you think as, you know, uh, someone who's a huge car enthusiast, someone who loves older cars as well as newer cars, about the Alfa Romeo brand, the Alfa Romeo story? I mean, first of all, thanks for keeping on the chase. I, I'm so happy to be here with you, Matt. <laughs> Second of all, what's not to love? This is a hundred plus year old brand with real racing history. It was history. It was winning the Targa Florio in the early 1920s. Of course, we have you know famous Alfa Romeo movie cars like the little spider and the graduate, of course, that everyone knows and loves. It's got real history. It's Italian. Who doesn't love Italians? Um, and it's it's owned by the largest car brand in the or the fourth largest sorry car brand in the world, Stellantis. Like you said, there's a lot going for it. I actually like how even the modern cars look. I think they look distinctive. They look interesting, um, and they're pretty well built. They've got some great specs. They're competitive within the market share. But my caveat is, for whatever reason, Alfa Romeo has really struggled to gain real momentum and real ground in it's the U.S. It's very so, true. Yeah. I looked at yeah. the stats, um, and last year, Alfa Romeo sold 12,845 cars, which is very little, right? BMW sold more than 330,000. Mercedes uh, sold more than 340,000. Tesla sold almost half a million cars last year in, in the U.S. market, so... Um, my question yeah. is, why doesn't Carlos Tavares, why doesn't Stellantis, you know, it's a $60 billion company, invest more in this brand? Listen to what Tavares told us on Wednesday. Alfa Romeo is a big success since uh, Stellantis was created. We made a huge turnaround of the business model. 
It's now a highly profitable brand. It's a growing brand, uh, 60% volume growth on the H1 uh, 2023 compared to last year. So it's growing, it's highly profitable. We have turnaround. We are happy to be in Formula One and we are going to increase our presence uh, in uh, in uh, the US, including, including at one point in time. So it's interesting that they're getting back into racing, Hannah, and I'm sure that's uh, key for an, an enthusiast like you. But the problem for me is not only, well, this car that I was test driving is front-wheel drive, which is already, like, forget about it for really? me. Yeah, I mean, that's just not my my thing. But for some people, it's a great vehicle because it has it's good, in the snow. good electric range. It has, I guess, it's okay in the snow, and uh, you could also take longer trips with the motor. But... Um, my problem is it breaks down so much. In J.D. Power's initial quality survey, uh, they showed 204 issues per 100 vehicles, and that's only the first three months. So in the first three months, every owner essentially has more than two mechanical problems. Uh, that's yeah, something that they have to fix. That's, that's just completely untenable, and unfortunately, in the U.S. especially, that has been the existing reputation for Alfa Romeo, so much so that it's kind of a joke, even for people who really love the brand and who collect the old cars and who want to buy the new cars. That is just the sticky reputation that they have. And, you know, of course, Tavares is saying they're pumping money into it and it's successful, but he's talking on a global level. In the U.S., Alfa Romeo has had a very spotty history. Let's not forget they were dormant and didn't sell any cars here for several decades. Uh, in 2016, they sold less than fewer than six, 600 cars for the full year in the U.S., uh, these these 12,000 that they've sold last year were down from the previous year, and this year on tr they're on track to sell even fewer. They're probably going to sell around 10,000. So uh, in the U.S. specifically, you're right. You know, when you think about Alfa Romeo being in the same competitive set as Audi, BMW, Mercedes, even Volvo, even Jaguar. Uh, there's there are a lot of options. So when you're having reliability problems, it's an automatic no go. It's too bad because um, the Julia and the Stelvio apparently are amazing performance cars. But if they break down, yeah. you know, that's uh, that's kind of a deal breaker. Um, also, you know, Hannah, I was joking with you and you pointed out that everybody made the same joke about the new Ferrari SUV. It kind of looks <laughs> like a Mazda SUV. This Alfa Romeo Tonale that I was test driving looks exactly like the Dodge Hornet. I think we might have video <laughs> of the Dodge Hornet. The reason is that they're essentially the same car. Dodge saw that Alpha was making this. They wanted an entry into the subcompact market. So they just stole it being a sister brand and changed like a couple pieces of sheet metal. But it's $10,000 less. And I can't imagine why anybody would want uh, to pay more for the Alpha when you could get the same car uh, as a Dodge for so much cheaper. Okay, this is where we may disagree and in a good way because I feel like you really understand like the 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 paper. The paperwork says the Dodge is the better buy, but I still am a little bit shallow and I like this sort of Italian <laughs> cachet that Alfa Romeo has even though all the things we already know about Alfa Romeo to me, it does at least have this sort of Italian luxury cachet. So I'm going to still probably go with the Alfa Romeo over the Dodge. I also think the interior of the Alfa Romeo looks a little more interesting than the interior of the Hornet. Tell me if I'm wrong, but that's my take. I think you're, you're probably right. By the way, the good news is <laughs> I went on a call. It was way too early for you, but this morning at 6.30 a.m., Maserati CEO Davido Grasso had a conference call, and he said they have 
poured money into the quality issues to try and fix. Obviously, it's a very different brand and a different segment, but they're still both owned by Stellantis. Said they're going to try and fix the quality issues there, and they've made great headway. I mean, I'm glad to hear it. I do think perception lags behind reality. So it may be a few years before the, the public consumers right. pick up on this improvement. And I do think, you know, Alfa Romeo hasn't been marketed strongly in the U.S. the same right. way that Audis are marketed. So some of it could just, you know, if they keep throwing money at it, uh, we, <laughs> okay. may be, we may see some growth. Who knows? All right, Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Hannah Elliott, staff writer for Bloomberg Business Week from Los Angeles, talking to us. A little car talk right there. Why not? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.